Yes, it's that madcap pair of Salisbury Spire spotters Petrov and Boshirov, or pro- more properly known as Mishkin and Chepiga, who are back, or rather they were back, in Prague in 2014. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Honestly, I hadn't actually planned on recording a podcast this weekend. I have a stack of student papers to grade, and it's a lovely sunny day. But nonetheless, this is something that's actually quite personal. I want to talk about the current case, the crisis in relations between the Czech Republic and the Russian Federation, and the expulsion of fully 18 Russian diplomats because of fairly solid accusations about something that happened back in 2014 that gives us a sense, actually, of the longevity of Russia's covert political war, which sometimes gets rather more wary than political, with the West. And why is this personal? Well, this is also about me and the Czech Republic. So, settle down, get a beer, get a chunk of pork, and let's get talking Czech Republic. Not least because I refuse to call it Czechia, as the sort of current formally approved short form is. It just sounds so ugly. Czech Republic it is. Well, back in 2016 to 2018, I was living in Prague and working at the Institute of International Relations there, um, which is definitely the country's best international affairs think tank and affiliated with the foreign ministry. And I I had a great time there, and Prague is always a place I have very, very fond feelings for. Nonetheless, I confess I did at times make myself a little bit unpopular with certain people in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs because I would hassle them about maybe really they should be doing something more about the fairly massive presence of Russian intelligence officers in the Czech Republic, particularly at the embassy. You've got to understand something. The embassy in Prague, by reason of historical accident and clever opportunism, is disproportionately large. In total, there's something like 150, roughly speaking, uh, Russian diplomatic and service personnel there and at a consulate. And that's because essentially this is the old Soviet embassy to the Czechoslovak Soviet era Warsaw Pact puppet state. And as such, it was as much as anything else a kind of a, a proconsular institution. And obviously it was you know, pretty damn big. Now, when Czechoslovakia broke away from the Warsaw Pact, and then much more significantly when Czechoslovakia, through the so-called Velvet Divorce, broke into the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic, well, the embassies remained pretty much intact. No one really wanted to sort of challenge the scale there and and, and pick a fight with Moscow over that. So you had this very large embassy, and according to BIS, which is the Czech Counterintelligence Service, at least a third, I mean, I've seen estimates of up to two-thirds, I think that strikes me as being a little bit too high, but anyway, at least a third of that disproportionately Russian population 
population there are actually intelligence officers. And this would largely be a mix of people from the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, and GRU, military intelligence. And yes, necessary little asterisk, technically these days it's called, still called GU, but nonetheless everyone still calls it by its old name of GRU. And there are also um, officers of the FSB, the Federal Security Service, but they operate on a kind of like different basis. They're probably largely not on diplomatic cover. There isn't a, a residentura, an FSB station in the Czech Republic, to the best of my knowledge. So anyway, there's a very large array there. Now, it's not that they are spending all their time watching the Czech Republic. If they did that, essentially they would know everything right down to Prime Minister Babish's shoe size. No, it's in part that this also becomes a useful base for officers working, kind of supporting intelligence activities in other neighbouring countries. The good old Schengen regime, after all, allows them to travel very easily. So they might be in Poland, they might be in Germany, they might be in Hungary or whatever. Now remember, when they're operating outside the country to which they're assigned, they do not have diplomatic immunity. But the point is, there's a whole load of other activities, whether it's surveillance or just simply carrying stuff or whatever, which doesn't really carry that kind of a risk with it. So these are essentially support officers, and we see it in other cases. I mean, at the moment, there's quite a degree of attention to, for example, what's going on in Dublin, because it looks like the Republic of Ireland is also a country in which the Russians are ramping up their operations, not so much because of the country itself, but because it represents a base from which to operate elsewhere. So this is something that you know, has been known for quite some time. But Prague was characteristically unwilling to pick a fight with Russia. It has, after all, long been, I think, something of a characteristic of Czech foreign policy to want to position itself neither at the front nor the back of the pack. So not necessarily the most aggressive, but nor necessarily the most passive, but somewhere nice and, and conveniently in the middle. And yes, I will confess that's something that I find sometimes a little exasperating uh, because I think the Czech Republic, frankly, has the potential to be so much more. But there you go. That, that's just me, the arrogant Anglo, finding himself there. But obviously things, things have changed. And in some ways we could have seen that with the response to the Skripal affair, which clearly has distinct resonance here, when as part of the massive multinational, indeed global, wave of expulsions, the Czechs kicked out three Russian spies from the embassy, even though knowing that you know, the Russians in turn would do their usual bit of tit-for-tat. Then in 2020, we had a faintly surreal interlude in which um, attempts to basically move a statue to Marshal Konyev, the Soviet Great Patriotic War commander, who also incidentally played a crucial role in the brutal suppression of the Prague Spring in 1968. Well, the statue that was still there in, in Prague, um, the, the local uh, authorities wanted, wanted to move it, the Russians regarded this as some kind of terrible and heinous Insult to them, insult to the, the dead of the Great Patriotic War, blah, blah, blah. And then after that, we had this account, this claim, that Russian assassins had entered the country carrying rice in poison with a hit list of three particularly strident anti-Russian local um, elected officials whom they were to kill. And this led to all kinds of furore. It, it, frankly, it sounded deeply iffy even at the time. Not least because this was already in um, eras of, 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 of lockdowns and so forth and, and, and limited travel. 
Plus, the three guys in question were just really not important enough to be worth this kind of an action. And indeed, it turned out that really it was, an, in some ways, a hoax, really, generated by personal rivalries within the Russian embassy. But nonetheless, two Russians were expelled as a result of that. So in some ways, we, we'd already begun to see some signs that the, the Czech lion was, was, was willing to show its fangs. And then we have this case, and we have fully 18 diplomats and I hope people can understand that that word diplomat has inverted commas around it, being expelled from the embassy. Now, that doesn't obviously represent all the spies, but still, it's a pretty big chunk, and obviously we don't yet know the, the full details. I wonder if, if they focused on specifically the GRU residentura at the embassy. I mean, 18 might well be its full complement, so that would be quite interesting if they literally just decided to kick out every single person they knew or believed to be a military intelligence officer. And the reason for that is precisely that. Going back to 2014, in 2014, October 2014, um, at uh, Ammunition Depot number 16 in Vrbjetice. Wow, Czech pronunciation. Always was a bit of a bane for me. Anyway, at Vrbjetice, um, there was a massive explosion in the middle of munitions. 50 tonnes worth of munitions uh, ended up going up in flames, and two people died as a result of that. It has subsequently come to light, according to the Czech authorities, and to be perfectly honest, the Czech authorities are pretty meticulous, and I, th I don't think they'd be just conjuring this up. Anyway, it it was because of the activities of GRU Unit 29155. That has become infamous as the unit that was responsible for the Skripal operation, that was having been linked to an attempted coup in Montenegro, and a whole variety of other activities. And basically, 29155 is the GRU's kind of action man unit. I mean, some people have presented it as being a kind of comprehensive regime change, disinformation, do everything kind of force. I don't think so. I think this is just your basic collection of heavies who, when you want to carry out what the Russians call wet work, in other words, killing, whether it's through Novichok or a, or a bomb or a shooting or whatever, these are the guys you turn to. Kind of collection of, of, of likely lads of certain particular specialist skill sets and a lack of scruples. And in particular, it turns out that we've seen some familiar faces. The two people whom the Czech police are, have identified as their main suspects are Petrov and Boshirov, the two guys whom we knew from the Skripal case, or as they actually seem to be known, uh, seem to be called genuinely, Mishkin and Chepiga. Now, they'd actually come into Prague on passports with the... Uh, Petrov and Boshirov identities. Remember, this is pre-Skripal, so at that point they weren't yet known. Though they got access to the arms depot with totally different identity cards, identity papers, actually one being claiming to be a Tajik and one claiming to be a Moldovan. And the reason for this operation, it looks likely, was because at the time, a Bulgarian arms dealer by the name of Emilian Gebrev was negotiating to buy, remember, it's worth noting, Czech Republic, as part of its many virtues, including a broad swath of agriculture and industry. Anyway, the Czechs actually make stuff, and amongst the things they make are guns and munitions. 
Anyway, so he was buying munitions with an eye to then selling it to the Ukrainians. And this is 2014. Remember when the Ukrainians had just had uh, Crimea annexed from under them and were busy fighting an undeclared war in Donbass. And 2014 is, after all, also a year in which there were a variety of unexplained explosions in Ukrainian arms depots. Now, arms depots are dangerous places at the best of times. And certainly in some of the Ukrainian cases, which obviously are all kind of officially blamed on on Russian sabotage, in some cases, some of the fires and things were probably just simply about mishandled munitions, munitions that were too old, that kind of thing. But only some of them. And the interesting thing is then there were also some explosions in Bulgarian arms depots subsequently. So, you know, putting the dots together, and this is just obviously inference, but nonetheless it looks like there was a campaign to essentially either try and deter Gebrev from dealing with the Ukrainians or just more broadly to deny the Ukrainians the opportunity to rebuild their stocks at a time when anyway their, their, their military was in a, well, military and their economy, was in a thoroughly parlous state. But, you know, obviously a, a very brutal and heavy-handed uh, type operation. Not least because then, in 2015, Gebrev himself seems to have been poisoned with, well, guess what? I'm sure it'll really shock and stun you at this point to hear that it looks like it was Novichok which definitely also seems to have become some, something of a GRU and Russian Spetslujby calling card. So, going back, this is the situation that it looks like now, in, in, back in 2014, even back then, Russian military intelligence was willing to sabotage arms sites. Now, one of the points of speculation is that, in fact, they had placed um, a booby trap or a delayed action explosive device which was intended to go off later, perhaps in back in Bulgaria, or actually maybe when it had reached Ukraine. And that the fact that it went off while it was still in the Czech Republic was an accident. That, that would fill in, fit in with a certain sort of uh, clumsiness of execution that uh, Messrs. Mishkin and Chepiga have already become known for. But nonetheless, wherever it was meant to explode, and obviously those two people who died... You know, that wasn't the intention. They were just collateral damage, to use the chilling language of the, of the day. Um, but nonetheless, this, this shows that even back in 2014, the Russians, or at least military intelligence, had absolutely already shifted to what we can think of as wartime mode. And I'll come on to that in a moment. But this seems to be a suitable mo moment for a quick break. And then let's talk about the political implications of what's going on. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. It's easy to be cynical, especially when, frankly, it comes to Czech politics. Andrei Babish, the Prime Minister, who frankly has been periodically enmeshed in corruption scandals, may well have seen in this a chance to champion himself as the Patriot-in-Chief 
it gives him a chance to have a side swipe at the always depressingly pro-Moscow president, Zeman. And, well, maybe with the new American administration, this is also his chance to sort of demonstrate uh, that he too is on, on, on the side of the angels. Well, maybe. And certainly this is obviously the kind of line we're going to get from the Russians. Um, already we've had uh, Vladimir Jabarov, uh, who's the first deputy chair of the Federation Council International Affairs Committee, so that's the, the upper chamber, the Senate, calling this whole story... And it, sometimes idiom doesn't really translate that well. Nonsense sucked out of the thumb, okay, in order specifically to support the Americans who, after all, have just imposed sanctions on, or more sanctions on Russia. But for all that, I don't think we should just simply regard this as just a, a product of domestic polit political calculations or the Czechs acting as the mere cat's paws of other powers. I mean, first of all, the relationship between Babish and Zeman is a complex one, and in the main, actually, Babish has demonstrated that he needs to at least keep Zeman to an extent on the side. After all, there's just been the sacking of the previous foreign minister, Tomasz Petricek, precisely because, or no, correction, in part precisely because he was very much opposing the idea of the Czech Republic adopting the Sputnik V vaccine. So clearly that was something that they were looking to because the Czech Republic has, has just had a recent uh, fairly sort of severe wave of infections. There is inevitably going to be Russian tit-for-tat expulsions. That, that's what they do. And it's quite interesting because the Czech embassy in Moscow is much, much smaller than this over-large, over-weighty Russian embassy in Prague. And so if there's a full 18 expulsions, well, I'm not quite sure how many people are going to be left to, to turn the lights out. But still, that's, that's always been one of the risks. And you know, more, more generally, it's clear that they have chosen or been willing to pick a fight with a Moscow, which increasingly these days is pretty sort of sharp in its responses. Prague had just put itself forward as a potential location for a future Biden-Putin summit. Well, I don't think that's going to be happening. And likewise, this probably takes Rosatom, the Russian Nuclear Power Construction Corporation, out of the running for the proposed uh, renovation of a nu nuclear plant at Dukovani. Now, one might say, well, that's no real loss, but obviously the fewer people you have competing for the, for the contract, and I think this now means it'll be down to three, the less competitive a price you're likely to end up having to pay. So, I mean, I think, you know, we have to realise this is something that will have implications. And that obviously means that, therefore, it'll be all the more important for the West to demonstrate solidarity. We've already had Dominic Raab, uh, the British Foreign Secretary, um, saying, saying the right things. I think the Americans likewise. Um, well, that's, that's good and that's important and that's necessary. But obviously, if the Russians do retaliate and retaliate hard then I hope that actually solidarity will go beyond just simply thoughts and prayers. But we'll wait and see. So what are, though, the, the big implications? Well, look, this is, and look, as people will have no doubt noticed already, this is very much uh, an impromptu, unprepared podcast, so don't expect either the greatest polish or, indeed, the deepest insights. But if we look broadly, I mean, first of all, for Russia, let's face it, there's a lot of chickens and indeed albatrosses coming home to roost these days. 
And the very fact that, you know, it's a country like the Czech Republic, which in the past has been sort of relatively mild in its responses towards Russian provocations. And this follows on a case in which Bulgaria, which again has tended to be much more in the, again, I don't want to make it sort of pro-Moscow count, but let's say less willing to see there be some kind of big drawing of lines between the West and Russia. But nonetheless, recently, Bulgaria um, expelled, not just expelled um, some, some Russians and caught some Bulgarian spies, but made a big song and dance of it with a, with a great sort of video presentation showing, showing pictures and, and film of various dubious acts and such like, which again meant that they, they, they made of it much more of a thing than it might be. It could have just simply been a very quiet set of arrests and set of expulsions, but no, they wanted to make a thing of it. So I think this is, this is quite striking. And I think this really speaks to the massive erosion in what we could think of as Russian soft power, even amongst countries which have historical and, and cultural ties. What about the GRU then specifically? Well, in many ways, this has shown up the mix of what we've seen in the past, a, a mix of professionalism and incompetence. We shouldn't write off the GRU as just a bunch of keystone commandos because we've also seen them demonstrate some exceedingly high-end specialist skills and capacities. I think it's rather that really they were operating under a set of very, very different rules from the ones that we in the West adopt. And I, I mean, this is a point that I've been hammering on in the past, which is basically that the Kremlin has moved into a wartime mentality. And probably the tipping point was precisely the Maidan rising, the, the revolution of dignity in Ukraine in 2013, beginning of 2014, which to the more paranoid old men in the Kremlin very much was the product not just of, or rather not at all, of a genuine upwelling of opposition to a hostile, corrupt, unpleasant, unresponsive government which had just basically made a 180 degree turn on an initial plan to get closer to the European Union. No, of course, this was some kind of grand CIA and MI6 operation to steal Ukraine from Russia's sphere of influence and bring it into the West sphere of influence. Remember, they had this very, very zero-sum um, kind of approach that essentially it's all about who wins and who loses, rather than thinking that countries have their own agency. Anyway, after that point, I think that seems to have been when absolutely the, the sort of the, the paranoid mindset became policy and they decided that this was the struggle they were in. And it took us longer to, to realise that. But nonetheless, I think that that's really what's happening now. And this is why the GRU operates the way it does and why the GRU certainly so far has not suffered from any of the high profile revelations of cases. It's because basically it's doing what the Kremlin tells it to do, which is not to worry about the consequences, to get out there and do things, and if need be, kill people and break stuff and blow things up. If that's what the job entails, that's what the job entails. And let other people worry about the diplomatic consequences. So, you know, again, I, I suspect that, and obviously this is, this is a historical case, this is before the, the sort of post-Skripal backlash. But nonetheless, I mean, not only do I imagine that at worst, GRU Unit 29155 is going to just be given a different number. But I don't think we're going to see any kind of substantive shift in how they operate. And it's worth noting that, I mean, even within the Russian opinion, I mean, th this is being noted 
not always with particular um, esteem. Um, in this morning, Sunday morning, I noticed in Moskovsky Komsomolets, which is a not what one would think of as an opposition newspaper by any means, though nor is it one of the most kind of slavishly pro-state. But nonetheless, it had a little sly dig at Mishkin and Chepiga, describing them as famous for their interest in ancient English architecture, you know, for this ridiculous claim that they're in Salisbury just, just to look at the spire. And finally, what does this mean for the Czech Republic? Well, obviously, there, there are going to be consequences. There's no way of getting around it. And, you know, the consequences will range from the immediate and the overt diplomatic ones, like expulsions, or rather undiplomatic ones, um, all the way through to potential longer-term implications if Moscow decides that it wants to basically teach the Czechs a lesson. They are, to a degree, sort of vulnerable in some cases. We'll, we'll see if we see a, an upsurge in attempts at political destabilization, disinformation, and the like. But nonetheless, and again, this is just a very personal view, I mean, I do regard it as a very positive sign that actually maybe a country that for far too long has in many ways hobbled its own aspirations, has regarded itself, marginalised itself as a, a small European state when actually it's not that small. I mean, OK, it's not big. It, it's not Germany. It's not France. It's not, it's not Italy. But nor is it insignificant. Actually, the Czech Republic has both uh, you know, genuine strengths as well as a certain degree of residual moral standing, particularly from, from the days of, of Václav Havel and the very much when, when it uh, did espouse a very values-based, human rights-based foreign policy. But generally speaking, it's also one of the, um, I don't want to say more sane, but actually I do mean more sane, nations of Central Europe. I always found it interesting because when I was in Prague, in some ways, and although, look, I, I don't by any means regard myself as any kind of Russophobe or whatever, quite the opposite. But nonetheless, I, I did find that in, in sort of practical political terms, I was relatively hawkish by the standards, certainly, of, of kind of government and close-to-government discourse. And then I would go to, say, Warsaw, where by Polish standards... I was the fluffiest of white doves. And then I might head down into Hungary. Whereas, well, from Budapest's point of view, in a way, what I was talking about was pretty much irrelevant, because actually we all know the really big challenges is uh, migration and George Soros. Now, look, I mean, actually, Slovakia is also uh, a, a, a very a very sane country, and they're, and they're all kinds of, of, of sane, thoughtful, and in, insightful leaders and, and politicians around. But nonetheless, I mean, actually, the, the Czech Republic's capacity to demonstrate that one can be not in any way uh, mindless anti-Russian, but at the same time can respond on a very practical and pragmatic basis when the Russians do do things which are completely inappropriate in, in the modern era... Well, I mean, I think that's, that's a leadership role within Central Europe that, that Prague can indeed still aspire to. And in its own way, this might represent one step towards it. And that's where I'm going to end today. I mean, it's actually quite nice to end on, on a vaguely positive note when usually I'm talking about so much doom and gloom. And now, if you'll excuse me, before I go and do some more essay marking, I'm going to enjoy the sunny weather. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. 
Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Oh, you, Tavarish Prah.